Welcome to the Word to the Wise, a podcast series brought to you by Underwriters Laboratories, a leader in global safety sciences. We interview remarkable women who have chosen science and engineering as a career and are dedicated to creating a safer, more secure and sustainable future. A standard is a common language. Hmm. It allows all of us who speak millions of languages with even more dialects to come together in one perspective. We all converge on one perspective. It is a common point of understanding and behaving and designing and innovating. It brings us together as one. Now, why is that so important? Why is it so important for us as a globe to converge as one on any given topic? Well, for safety, for security, for sustainability. In these cases, as humans, we divorce ourselves from all of those other things that I call noise and we focus in on that one signal of humanity. As we round up season one of the Word to the Wise podcast, we're joined by an experienced transformational leader, Dr. Charlotte M. Farmer, Senior Vice President and Chief Operating Officer at Underwriters Laboratories, Inc. Dr. Farmer is a major proponent of operational excellence and partnering across government, businesses and non-governmental organizations to promote technological innovation and support fundamental and inclusive applied safety science research. She graduated with the highest distinction in chemical engineering and holds a master's in chemical engineering, MBA and doctorate in engineering. Dr. Farmer is in the Savoy magazine list of 2020's most influential black executives in corporate America. Dr. Charlotte Farmer, an absolute pleasure having you on the Word to the Wise podcast. It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me. You have such an inspirational academic business and leadership journey. But if I were to ask you to go back to the very beginning, when did the motivation to really pursue the field of science and engineering really begin? I will have to say as a a young girl, I'm one of 10 siblings, and one of my siblings went to school far, far away, it felt like, and she went to school at uh, Vanderbilt University in engineering, and it was at that time that I saw that I could strive for something much broader than I was currently experiencing. And so it was at that time in my life, I may have been 10 years old, and I said, I want to be like her. So I automatically saw my sister doing amazing things, and I said, I want that. (laughs) And For women listening to this conversation, it would be important to understand how you became a leading executive of so many large enterprises. Can you please briefly tell the story? What a story. There were multiple pivots. And what I mean by pivots 
are points in my career when I knew it was clear I had to reinvent myself, I reimagine what was next, because you often hear this term, what gets you here will not get you there. And so my pivots were very painful, actually, and, and eye-opening. So I'm happy to share uh, that with my vulnerability with, with your audience. The first pivot was one where I had saved this multi-billion dollar company from closing down and I was going to receive my award and I'm going to a, a boardroom in, in reflection. It was a boardroom, but I didn't know that. And I'm going up the stairs to the door and, and my hand is almost on the door and this very dignified gentleman comes behind me and says, you must be lost. Go to the receptionist to get a guidance. It was at that point, upon reflection, I realized you just saved a company and the individual who you saved doesn't perceive you as the person mm -hmm. who could be receiving this award. Now, mm -hmm. my award came in the mail four weeks later. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, I can't even begin to uh, explain how I felt about it other than to say I channeled those feelings into decisive action. I sought a sponsor and I immediately went into pivot mode and got an MBA. And that MBA allowed me to look above what I called at that first pivot, my cement ceiling. <laughs> so you hear about <laughs> a, a glass ceiling, you mm -hmm. can see what's above you, you know it's there and you, you're trying to figure out how to get there. A cement ceiling is, I didn't even see what was behind that door. Mm. And it was obvious to me, I never was going to see what was behind that door. And hitting my head against the cement ceiling could only result in a lot of pain. So that first pivot, yeah, I <laughs> <laughs> was the first pivot to just uh, reinvent myself because clearly a uh, chemical engineer with distinction and a graduate degree in chemical mm. engineering and saving a company was not going to be enough to grow in this organization. So that's the first pivot. I'll give you a few more pivots because I know we've got a short amount of time. After I um, graduated from business school and got a really cool degree, went to Hong Kong, finished my second year, was chased down by a consulting firm. They literally found me in Hong Kong. Nobody knew my forwarding information. So I felt pretty special <laughs> <laughs> and went to work for that com company ultimately. And then there was 9-11. So every most people, most people, at least in the States, know where they were and they know uh, what occurred in their lives when 9-11 occurred. So I happened to be at a really high point in my career. At least I felt like I was. And then there was tragedy all around me, a, a great amount of tragedy. And it was a very personal uh, reflection on what would happen in my life. So my husband was living in a different state 
while I was living in New York, you know, just living the New York fast paced, you know, life's great dream. And he basically said, we're not moving our family to New York. It's way too different, too different, too difficult, too, too dangerous, just those three Ds. And so I had to pivot again. Now, what I didn't tell you is that I had three kids in addition to my marvelous <laughs> husband, and I had to pivot toward my family this time. That first pivot was away from my family in a different country, uh, grasping at uh, the stars in my career. This next pivot was more about how do you embrace your family while doing well and continuing to grow? So Booz Allen, that was the company I was with gave me the opportunity to completely shift. I literally had to quit one job in our commercial business and hopefully get hired into our technical business that advised the federal government. There was no transfer. So I literally lost my job. I was mm. unemployed. Let's, let's just let that wave over you. I was unemployed for six long, painful months while the other part of Booz Allen decided whether they wanted me or not. So in this second pivot, again, I'm very humble. You, humble. you can think of these as peaks and valleys. I'm definitely in a valley at this point, hoping I can get an opportunity to go to the next company. They take me in, but because I came from the ivory tower in our commercial business to our federal business, all of that came with me. And so I was given this test that nobody else wanted in a place that nobody else wanted to go. And I was able to transform that tiny little task into a, almost a billion dollar business. And so I went from that valley to another peak. Well, guess what? Here comes my last pivot and, and then I'll let this story go. My... <laughs> My business is really going well, and I've got another pivot I got to make because my my baby, my daughter, wants to go to college, and my career is just taking over, just overshadowing my family once again. And here's my husband. He says, "Look, I raised the boys. Your daughter's fourteen. She needs her mom. Guess what?" Charlotte, you got to make some tough decisions. So I pivoted again. Mm. I went from running my almost billion dollar business to going to a company that's in systems engineering. And what was enticing was that, Charlotte, here are the benefits. Your daughter's going to have a mom. She's going to get into a marvelous college because you're going to treat your daughter as if you're treating your clients, which is like they're going to be successful. And while you're, while you're taking this sabbatical, I literally looked at this pivot as a sabbatical, a chance to rest, refresh, and stretch myself. And so I went to the best possible place you could go for systems engineering and, you know, with the intent of getting a PhD while being a great mom. And so I went to the MITRE Corporation. And then again, you, the, the universe just will not let me stay mediocre. I have to stretch. I have to grow. I, I have to make a positive impact. That's why I exist to make a positive impact on the world. And so in my efforts to get her into 
a military institution. It was West Point. You have to get congressional uh, approval. So mm. here I go again. I'm hobnobbing with individuals who are going to help us get a congressional nomination. And in the process, I began to advising our nation's leaders. So here we are back at, at that peak again. Good news. She gets into school. She graduates. Fast forward. Great career advising at MITRE, making a difference, convening heads of state, heads of business, heads of academia in ways that make the world safer. And I'm at this next juncture. Another pivot, by the way, building a new capability here at Underwriters Laboratories. Long story short, you got to be humble, you got to be prepared to pivot, and you got to be prepared to change and grow and, and lean into that pain. Thank you for that. <laughs> and just sticking with the whole idea of the cement ceiling and all the pivoting that you had to do. You had degrees in engineering, then you went on to do a master's in business administration. Do you believe you had to try harder because you were a woman and a woman of color? Yes, yes, yes. Oh my gosh, yes. Why? My, my mom, I told you I have 10 siblings. Guess what? Mm -hmm. Eight of those are girls. Wow. Eight girls, two boys. And my mom would always say, <laughs> to this day, she's 96 and I'm 50. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, I'm not going to say my age, but she would say, you know, we've done as God has commanded us and yet there's room. So her, her way of saying you can be the best that you can possibly be and yet there's room. There's always room to striving and grow and, and do better. And she would always say as we were leaving, in addition to that, be the best one there. You have to be 10 times better to be noticed. Because here's the thing, when you walk in a room, and you're not saying anything, the way you look, the way you dress, the color of your skin, your gender, they're screaming out things to people and you're not saying anything. So when you speak, when you engage, when you make an impact, it needs to scream louder than the way you look. And, and so, as a result, that has stuck with me. I show up very subdued. I wear boring clothes and boring colors so that the only thing you hear is the intonation of my voice, the, the meaning of my narrative, the purpose of my intent. Hopefully that's what shines through. And of course, the, the outcomes and the results of my actions so that you don't see the person, you just see the results. Mm. It, is, it is painful. It is true. I wish I could tell you the world is different, just is not. There's this notion of intersectionality. And when you think of intersectionality, you think, oh, they're just making excuses. Well, when you live it, 
you know right away it's not an excuse it's real i challenge anyone listening to to search for intersectionality to see what i mean and clearly you've had a lot of life lessons but did you have a mentor or someone you looked up to inspire you to be where you're today and what significant life lessons did that help you learn along the way Oh my gosh, did I have mentors? So I mentioned my sister and I ha- I'm not going to say the name of the sisters because I have so many. I don't want to <laughs> you know, I can't pick favorites. But what I can tell you about mentors, there wasn't just one. I like to say that I have a um portfolio of mentors. And and I liken it to um the president's cabinet or advisors. You know, the most powerful leader in, in your universe, where, wherever you are in the world, that president, that prime minister, that leader has advisors. And so I formed what I call my board of trustees and I've aligned them with my life goals. And, and I have five goals. Uh, one about spirituality. I believe there's a, a, a larger power beyond who I am. around my intelligence, my intellectual curiosity. I like to grow there and stretch. My professionalism and how I show up, connect and engage with leaders who are going to help scale and accelerate my mission in the world. My physicality, I got to be a corporate athlete so I can actually show up. And then the way I impact the world, my, my social impact. So those are like five areas where I want to holistically uh, make an impact. And as you can imagine, I've got advisors along each one of those, mentors along each one. And I try to get mentors who, ready for this, who don't look like me, mm. who are different cultures, mm. different genders who stretch me beyond my understanding, who make me better than I ever thought possible. I stretch for mentors who just might say no. So Mm. I aim high for my mentors. I aim across for my mentors and I aim low for my mentors. They Mm. come from all angles, all perspectives. My youngest mentor is 19 years old. Wow. A a hacker, Mm. a person who keeps me sharp in the ways of cybersecurity. My oldest mentor is 95, my mom. (laughs) Uh She keeps me humble. She focuses me on my spirituality, why I exist, to love and to, to be loved. So I have a range of mentors, and to pick out just one just seems inadequate. Wow, an entire board of mentors. The reason why I came to the question of mentors, and it's such a fabulous way that you've put it, is because when you look at the state of women in science and engineering degrees, they make up only less than 20% of the workforce after excelling academically. There's just so few inspiration stories of leadership and operational excellence like yours. What would it take to change that reality? 
Whoa, what a question. I'm conflicted. I'm conflicted by the question because I have to wonder if that statistic includes founders, owners. I always tell my kids, I really don't want you or to be an employee. I really want you to be an employer. I want you to be an owner, a founder. I want you to live into what makes you just gleam inside. I want you to thrive. And that isn't always being an employee. Mm. (laughs) And they look at me and they say, mom, but you're a chief operating officer. That's pretty cool. And I say, guess what? I'm still an employee. (laughs) I'm not the owner. I'm not the founder. I'm an employee. Mm. I serve at the pleasure of the CEO who serves at the pleasure of the board. So I still haven't answered your question. I just wanted to give you some background and context into why I'm going to respond the way I'm responding. Now, having said that, how are we going to get women from 20% to a percentage that actually reflects uh, the women in our stakeholder base, the women who are consumers, the women who accept services? Uh, How do we do that? A couple of ways, maybe more, but I'm only going to highlight two because I know we've got so many more questions to uh, explore together. One way, empower, Mm. empower our women to engage in careers that they typically would not aspire to. So how do we empower them? We ensure that anything, anything that would impede them from pursuing a career is mitigated. Mm. So now we have to think about those things that impede women from pursuing careers. What are they? Mm. Is it access to education? Well, let's have programs that target unashamedly, target women Mm. to get them toward careers that they pursue? Would it be our families raising, you know, children, caring for elderly parents? Let's get assistance. Mm. Let's provide childcare. Let's provide elder care. Let's provide flexibility in work experiences. If you're caring for family by day, then perhaps we allow you to have hours that help you engage when you are available to engage. Mm. Perhaps we allow jobs that don't necessarily require you to be in an office. You can be remote. I'm sure I have blind spots and I haven't covered everything, but that first thing is to empower by removing impediments. Mm. We got to discover what those impediments are and we got to mitigate them together. That second thing is the desire. Now this gets very personal and it gets very personal quickly. There may be women out there who simply 
do not desire to be in the workforce. So how do you even work with that? I challenge us to accept if an individual chooses not to be in the workforce. Mm. And let's discover what that means for an individual. Maybe we need to reexamine the statistic. I literally, in that six months when I wasn't working, I tried to be a stay-at-home mom. I had three kids. That's the workforce. Mm. It's hard work. Mm. Should we call that work? So maybe we revisit the statistic and we determine what work really means and then revisit this question because I'm not I'm not so sure. I was, I'm scratching my head as I'm answering this on the second part around desire. Maybe we just respect a percentage of these individuals who choose not to engage in work. I'm doing air quotes, work as the person who uh, put that statistic together defines work. So how do we define work? Mm. Scratching my head on that one. <laughs> And sticking with the idea of desire, and so if we assume women desire to be counted in, what are the avenues and possibilities available for diverse groups in the arena of safety sciences research and standard development? So assuming they do desire, okay, you got me there. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you got me. So now I'm dealing with women who definitely do desire, who really want it. Now, ask me that question again. So if they do desire and want it, what are the avenues and possibilities available for them in the arena of safety sciences research and standard development? Because it is a pretty large and wide area. Wow, it's a huge area. So this is a fun question because it invites everyone, anyone and everyone. If you are interested in being in standards, okay? Mm. It assumes that you are aware of the applications of those standards, okay? Mm. So now if we're thinking about the application of the standards, that opens up a window into every aspect of our lives, When you think about underwriters laboratories, and I was doing my research to get my position, I read something that said underwriters laboratories insignia where we, you know, test, inspect, and certify products before they go into market, into our homes. It said, don't quote me on it. I'm doing (laughs) the danger myself here. As many as 90 times, nine zero. Now, that Mm -hmm. number, I'm just going to say air quotes 90 times, a lot of times, just say a lot of times in your home, in your workplace, in your car, as you're, if you're flying, you might just see that emblem, Mm. that, that certificate. So that basically means this, if you are at least aware of how that standard will be used to ensure the safety of devices in your workplace, in your place of play, in your place of matriculation, 
if you're aware, that's the first thing. The second thing is understanding. Mm. So now you need to understand how standards are created. Well, if you can understand cooperation, collaboration, ensuring consistency across processes, and you can, most people can, then guess what? Welcome to the table. So broad audience that understands the application of standards and how they ensure that our products are, are safe, bring it in a little bit more to understanding the processes, the core processes necessary in establishing standards, and then bringing it in a little bit more. There is science, there is technology. Perhaps having an understanding, having an education that allows you to ask complex questions, simple questions, but certainly allowing you to explore your intellectual curiosity around the specifics for any given standard, if you've got that as a proclivity, come to the table. Awareness, understanding, intellectual curiosity. What you've probably heard me not say is, you haven't heard me say get an engineering degree. You didn't hear me say get a computer science degree. You mm. didn't hear me say that you need to be a rocket scientist. Mm. What you heard me say is intellectual curiosity. Interesting. A person with a legal degree could come to the table. A person with a history degree could come to the table. A person who is very comfortable with large amounts of data and understands analytics and, and synthesis. Welcome, welcome to the table. I want to ensure that I answer this question in a way that no one feels excluded. Everyone mm -hmm. feels like they have an opportunity to engage. If you see a position out there around our standards and engagement, I want you to go for it. I want you to reach out to me in whatever avenue you see me in social media because there is an opportunity to engage. Mm. Interesting. So it's that intellectual curiosity that's really going to count women and other diverse groups in. But what is an important factor in developing truly global standards? How can countries be on the same level playing field when it comes to standards and the mission to be unified and more inclusive? Yes, yes, yes. So the word in and of itself means commonality. Hmm. It, it, it implies it implies commonality. It implies repeatability. It implies a consistency. It implies trust. It implies all of these things. And you might think that as an engineer with a, a PhD, <laughs> yeah, a, a doctorate degree uh, in engineering, I would give you a very scientific answer. Instead, I'm going to give you an answer that is perhaps more difficult to even achieve. When we attempt standards across our planet, it means that we have to open ourselves up to appreciate the cultures that mm. will be impacted by the standard. 
what works in one nation may not work in another nation for very obvious reasons. Mm. And these could be blind spots to us. So what I say as the answer is opening ourselves up to listen and to learn before taking action. That is the most important thing that we can do as humans <laughs> <laughs> to listen to learn and then internalize and process and determine what the standard will mean for the culture that it's in what are the implications of it that's the critical thinking part. Mm. So these are the things that are, are very important. Being open to listening and learning and then taking what you've learned, your sensing, and apply the critical thinking to then have a standard that is robust mm. across multiple cul cultures. That is the most important part, the collaboration piece. When we create standards, and I say the uh, we, I mean not just underwriters laboratories, I mean any organization that is in the business of designing standards. It is imperative to ensure that bias is not in the standard, that it's, that it's a consensus approach. Thus, listen, learn, critical thinking, open collaboration for a consensus approach to building standards. That's the real value. Hmm. And how important is it to keep the conversation going on why standards matter so much in the field of science and engineering, especially across mm -hmm. gender and other diversities across the globe? Why standards matter so much? <laughs> <laughs> you would think that I would give an underwriter's laboratories answer and that would show bias because it's my job. Of course, I'm going to say standards matter so much because I'm in the business of standards. But I'm actually going to give you a response from another part of my life when mm -hmm. I was responsible for transportation secure security for our nation, moving millions of people every day moving commerce across the globe safely and securely. Mm. In that position, while it, it was certainly advising on transportation security impacting our globe, it was incumbent upon us to have standards because a standard is a common language. Mm. It allows all of us who speak millions of languages with even more dialects to come together in one perspective. We all converge on one perspective. It is a common point 
of understanding and behaving and designing and innovating. It brings us together as one. Now, why is that so important? Why is it so important for us as a globe to converge as one on any given topic? Well, for safety, for security, for sustainability. In these cases, as humans, we divorce ourselves from all of those other things that I call noise, and we focus in on that one signal of humanity. And not many people would think of, okay, Charlotte, you're stretching it. You're going from humanity to standards. Okay, scratch your head on that. But, but bear with me, bear with me here. If we all converge on the power of one, one view that will keep us safe, secure, and sustainable, let me give you an example, okay? I'm going through an airport. I'm picking just one mode of transportation. I could pick rails. I could pick road. I could pick submarines. I could pick ships. I could pick any other mode of transportation. I just happen to pick air travel. Okay. So let's say I'm going on a trip and I'm going to, I'm going to drive. So I'm getting out of, of my car. I'm parking in the parking lot. I'm going to walk from the parking lot to the front of the airport, going to go into the airport, going to um, go through security, get on the plane. Guess what? There may have been hundreds of standards between the time I got out of my car to the time I got on the plane that that govern the way technology engages for my security. Okay, Charlotte, that's word salad. Those are a lot of words. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, there are sensors that are detecting things about the way I look, the way I engage. There might be camera sensors. There might be video you know, I put my hands up, you know, and, and I'm going through the sensor that checks for metal, lots of sensors. Those sensors need a way to communicate. A standard is used to ensure that they have one language, mm. these electronics to communicate. Without the standard, the video can't talk to the flat information, can't talk to the screen that I just walked through to determine if I'm dangerous or not. Mm. So I've got to have all of these electronic gizmos, if you will, have one standard that drives the way they communicate. And that keeps me safe. Okay, I'm getting boring. I'm, I'm getting nerdy. So sorry. I went from humanity to standards to <laughs> gizmos. That's a bit much. Pull me back in. No, I think that's a very powerful and yet grounded explanation of the power of why standards matter. But if we were to get closing on the key lessons, you know, what would you say are two or three key leadership lessons 
that you've learned in your scientific and business career that you would like to pass on to listeners of this conversation? Mm. Two or three leadership lessons. Number one, humility. Mm. Do not take yourself too seriously. And, and, and you know, <laughs> humility. Don't take yourself too seriously. That's the first one. The reason I say that one is if you're going to live, you're going to fail. Unless you're just hiding somewhere and you're not trying very hard or you're not stretching very far, chances are you're going to fail. So just just be humble. Be be willing to to fail. I always tell people <laughs> if you haven't failed, then you, your goal, you, you just haven't set any stretch goals. Mm. I, I'm, I'm one of those people who embraces individuals who tell me that they've tried, they failed, and they persevered. And so the second one is be humble and just have a sense of humor that should be adequate enough for you to be okay with failing. And then the second thing is perseverance. <laughs> I guarantee you, most of us have been rejected in some form or fashion. You know, I've tried for jobs. I didn't get them. My feelings were hurt. And I'm grateful that I didn't get some of those jobs because I ended up where I am now. It is a blessing that I didn't get. I'm so happy I didn't get some of those jobs. <laughs> Rejection was the best thing that ever happened to me. I mean, I survived 9-11 because someone didn't give me an interview. And guess what? Because I didn't get that interview, I didn't go to New York on that day. I went someplace else. Thank goodness for rejection. So uh, <laughs> perseverance, that's the second one. Don't take yourself too seriously, persevere. And then the third one is be inclusive, be respectful. You're going to get advice from lots of people. Listen to the person who is four levels below you. What they have to say matters. It perhaps matters as much as your colleagues. I open my door to any and everyone. And oftentimes that can be tough because mm -hmm. there are a lot of people on the other side of that door. The thing is, I listen to any and everyone that has a perspective so that I can then, you know, use my critical thinking, weigh it, assess it, and consider it in the way I engage. So humble, persevere, and open, open to other perspectives. Listen, and I would say anyone who's listening to this podcast needs to listen to it right till the end because you've given us a lot to think about. Dr. Charlotte Farmer, thank you for taking out so much time to speak to us on the Word to the Wise podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm honored. Through Word to the Wise, we will continue to build on our legacy. 
driving transformative change in pursuit of a safer and more resilient society by inspiring more young women to envision a career in the field of STEM. Remember, you too can nominate more remarkable women to be part of the show or just send in your questions for future guests on the Word to the Wise podcast. All you have to do is visit us on saferindiatoday.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Safer India Today. Don't forget to subscribe and like us on your favorite podcast platforms. Thank you for listening.